0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Well, it's a new year, and some of you might be thinking, how can I make a change? Whether it's a change in your career or doing something in your work that creates change. I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, we're going to meet someone who decided to do both. Former police officer James Maskey is now National Engagement Manager of the Beyond Blue Police and Emergency Services Program. This program promotes mental health of these personnel and works to reduce their risk of suicide. We'll delve into landmark research around this in a moment, but first, I wanted to know what led James to ultimately leave a job that he loved. And just a heads up, this conversation includes pretty heavy topics like suicide and child abuse. James, let's go back to a hot summer's day. It's 2012 and you're a young officer in the Queensland Police. You're just 23 years old. What happened that day?
0: On that particular day, I was working in an unmarked police car uh, with two other colleagues and uh, you're right, it was a warm summer's day and roughly about halfway through our shift, we received a uh, an urgent call across the police radio and that was for a young boy was a suicide event and um, it was an area in which we worked Um, so we were first on the scene and uh, I was the driver on that day and I was driving lights and sirens and trying my best to get there as soon as I possibly could. Unfortunately I took a wrong turn and this is quite frustrating because I knew the area and the house quite well but that wrong turn added probably about an extra 60 seconds to our response time. And when we arrived on the scene, unfortunately, we did see a young 12-year-old boy who, uh, it was not, he was not conscious. And there were st- still some signs of life. So my colleagues and I, uh, we commenced CPR and we also requested for the ambulance service to attend and, and provide life assistance. Unfortunately, that took about 10 minutes or so. So we were first on the scene providing compressions and, and uh, breaths for about 10 minutes with no further assistance. And this was um, a really impactful and traumatic incident for me because the boy was so young and there were family in in the backyard with us and they were so distraught and so emotional and so so sad at what had happened. Unfortunately we weren't able to save that young boy and you know we we helped load him up onto the ambulance and get him off to the to the hospital in Logan and then we stayed with the family and we helped them process what had just happened and we tried to support them the best way that we knew how and then unfortunately that was the end of my shift that day and and I went home and that incident really stuck with me.
1: What is it that particularly stuck with you? Because you say this is really the starting point when you felt that your mental health declined.
0: There were a couple of things that stuck with me. I think um, the sounds, the the sounds of the family crying and, and there was a lot of screaming as well that occurred. You know, the images, the images of the young boy lying on the ground as we were pumping his chest and providing compressions. But then also... We talk about in in first responder work having an emotional bucket and what also stayed with me is that this incident was a drop in the bucket that just filled up upon all the other trauma experiences and unfortunately it overflowed my emotional bucket.
1: So how does the emotional bucket work? Like, how do you know the size of your bucket?
0: So everybody has a different size emotional bucket. For some people, it's quite a deep well and they're able to cope with the stresses of the the job really well. And for others, it's quite shallow. And every traumatic incident that you see or respond to adds a drop of water to that emotional bucket. And for me, I worked in quite a busy district of uh, the Queensland Police Service in Logan. And trauma exposure was bread and butter and a part of the job that I did. And this incident was just one of many that filled up my emotional bucket. I was quite young at that time and I didn't have the life experience or the coping mechanisms that I have now. So it really sat with me and really impacted me because this was just the tip of the iceberg of all the trauma that I experienced in my career. So because of that, what I found is that I had difficulty sleeping, uh, difficulty concentrating. I became irritable most of the time, actually, you know, for example, when I would wake up and and put my feet on the floor each morning, my stress level would be a solid eight or nine out of 10 to start the day and nothing had really happened. Mm. And then I found that I was always hypervigilant as well, always aware of my surroundings. And, you know, at that age, I didn't have the life experience to know that that's not normal. That's not what other people experience in their career or, or in their day to day life. So, I guess to, to summarise, like, this incident was the one that really just flowed over that emotional bucket.
1: James, you say it was the tip of the iceberg. What else had you experienced in your line of work?
0: That incident was the tip of the iceberg, but there were a lot of incidents that came before this one. At that time, I was in uniform, and part of the, the job of a uniformed police officer is to respond to any call for service from the public. So it wouldn't be out of, out of the unusual for us to, to respond to a traffic crash or respond to multiple domestic violence incidents, to, re, to be first on the scene to a murder. And, you know, that, that happened quite a few times for me. To be first on the scene to a really big street fight or first on the scene to, to property damage or theft. All of these incidents were high adrenaline and they were high risk And on multiple occasions, we would, for example, go into a house and clear it with our firearms drawn, not knowing who was in the house or what we were responding to or what the level of risk was. And um, all of these incidents became the norm for me and a state of heightened adrenaline and a sense of hyper-awareness also became the norm. And this really impacted and flowed over my bucket. Mm.
1: And so why did you decide to join the Child Protection Unit?
0: The Child Protection Investigation Unit was always something that I wanted to join. To me, they are the most skilled professional investigators in the entire service. You know, investigating protracted criminal uh, cases where young people have been victims of harm or abuse or neglect. And we did some incredible work, some really remarkable investigations where I'm quite proud of the outcomes that we had for, for young people in Queensland. We were able to, to provide justice to victims who otherwise wouldn't have a voice. So there is a big part of me that is quite proud of that work. But unfortunately, the, the impact of the trauma that I experienced in that role will stay with me for life. You know, there were many instances of sexual abuse against young kids. There were many instances of attempted murder and grievous bodily harm of young young kids. And these are things that, are, that it's not normal for another person to experience in another line of work. And the trauma impact, it was so significant and it really required some intensive supports psychologically to help me process some of these trauma experiences.
1: And did you get that trauma support?
0: No, not, not initially. Um, I recall um, back in 2013 before my PTSD diagnosis, I went and saw my boss at the time and I put my hand up and I said that I wasn't travelling so well. Unfortunately, my boss knew me as, as young and eager and eager to progress in my career and he was looking out for me the best way that he knew how at that point in time. And that was to tell me not to reveal my struggles to other police members and not to put in any official documentation requesting support. And that if I needed that psychological support, I should seek it outside of the service. And initially I had, I guess, a bit of anger about that. You know, this was an organization that put me front and center in in trauma facing experiences, but wasn't able to provide the support to help me process the trauma. You know, and looking back now, I can I can I can see where he was coming from. It was perpetuated through the the police service that we are six foot tall and bulletproof. We aren't flawed. We don't have troubles with our mental health, and that's a big cultural piece that really requires unpacking. So to receive that mental health support, I went externally. I saw my GP. She was somebody that I knew, somebody that I trusted. But I didn't know what would happen as a result of that appointment. I just knew that I had to speak to somebody that I trusted.
1: What were you feeling at the time? What sort of symptoms were you experiencing?
0: Yeah, so I had difficulty sleeping either in the regularity of my sleep or the length of the sleep or the quality of the sleep. But I would wake up in the middle of the night in sweats, having nightmares, reliving situations that I had experienced, reliving arrests, reliving trauma, reliving difficult and, and conversations and conflict. Another thing for me was that I was always stressed, always, and as a result, I had some really troubling conversations with those that I loved, and I noticed this in myself and you know, I noticed that it wasn't okay, but I didn't know what to do about it. But for me, I think the flashbacks, um, it was certainly part of my story. Reliving those images like a slideshow. Uh, every time I closed my eyes or every time I would have a conversation with someone and I was triggered by a specific memory or event, I could see as clear as day those trauma experiences directly in front of me. And, you know, as a coping mechanism, I was drinking to forget. And I was drinking to excess. And because I didn't want to impact those around me. I foolishly, I pushed people away. I severed relationships that, you know, would have supported me with my mental health journey because I didn't know any better. And I didn't know, you know, what supports I may have required at that point in time. And from what I understand with PTSD, this is quite a a typical journey.
1: And so you had to deal with this on an individual basis. How did it all come to a head for you?
0: It all came to a head um, after I pushed everybody away and my lovely wife, who we're now married and we've been together for quite some time, we were dating at the time and our relationship ended. The struggle that Lisa went through to keep me communicating, to keep me present, um, was just too much for us to, to handle as a couple. So unfortunately that relationship imploded And I pushed away those who were closest to me. And at that point in time, when I looked around and I didn't see anybody who I loved and cared for, that was when I knew that I needed that support. And that was the time that I reached out to my GP, and that was the time that I started seeing a a psychologist on the Gold Coast who, you know, really specializes in working with frontline emergency service workers. went through um, a couple of appointments per week for about three or four months uh, to unpack the trauma experiences through cognitive behavioural therapy um, and to really examine uh, the trauma and why it had such an impact and to unpack... um, you know, I should have done this or unpack the, the unfair assumptions that I held about how I should have responded to the incidents, how I could have helped that person. You know, this is something that's quite common for emergency service workers to have that guilt around, I could have done better, I should have done this. And once I was able to challenge that, I was able to understand that it was not my fault, and that I was doing the best that I possibly could have at the time with the skill set that I had and with the life experience that I had.
1: James, what did it mean to label it for you, PTSD or trauma?
0: Um, What it meant, first of all, was it was relief. To, To put a label on what I was experiencing helped me understand that I wasn't alone and that what I was experiencing, there was a reason for it. And I felt a great deal of safety and security in knowing that it was PTSD, it was a mental health condition, and it wasn't just me. But then also in the same breath, I was petrified around what it meant for my career, what it meant for applying for for new positions or even holding my current position, and what it meant for the way that I might be perceived by my colleagues, my friends, and my family.
1: Can we go uh, into you being petrified? Because I think wrapped up in that is that sense of shame and also what your boss said about, look, don't tell anyone because it might make you appear weaker. So how did you um, address that for yourself?
0: It was a really hard journey that I went on. I didn't reveal my struggles to any other colleagues in the police service. Back in 2013, unfortunately, that culture and that stigmatization of mental health conditions and being seen as a burden by others and feeling like you were a burden as well was definitely real. Uh, it was definitely part of my journey. So I didn't reveal those struggles to my colleagues. But what I did do is that I realized that, unfortunately, this career that I love so much, a career that I cared so deeply about, was something that I couldn't do long term. And I acknowledged that in myself, and I realised that it was time to step away. So in 2015, I made the really difficult but yet empowering decision to separate from the Queensland Police Service, because I knew that the culture of, you know, we are 10 foot tall and bulletproof, and we don't, we're not Ford, we are Teflon, that wasn't serving me. And I would like to acknowledge that in 2020, I know the Queensland Police Service has made significant improvements in this, and that addressing the stigma that exists is part of a cognitive and cultural change, and that is happening. But unfortunately, the sector has a long way to go.
1: And just how far it has to go is documented in the first national mental health and wellbeing survey of more than 20,000 police and emergency services personnel. Dr David Lawrence from the University of Western Australia led that research, and I asked him, how common is James's experience?
2: Unfortunately, it is quite a common experience within uh, the emergency services. So with the uh, study that we undertook for Beyond Blue, we found that uh, approximately 10% of uh, employees across police, ambulance, fire and uh, the state emergency services sector meet uh, diagnostic criteria for uh, PTSD and uh, approximately uh, double that number have uh, high levels of uh, psychological distress, so uh, symptoms that might indicate they have issues with anxiety and uh, depression. So we found that uh, mental health issues are probably twice as common within the police and emergency services sector as in the general population.
1: And what were the other major findings of your research, David?
2: So we looked uh, in the uh, study at uh, the prevalence of mental health and well-being but we looked at uh, the risk factors for developing uh, mental health issues for supporting well-being and resilience both at the individual and the organizational level and we looked at uh, use of help uh, services when uh, mental health issues uh, develop so mm. like uh, what uh, James was saying in his story it's not just the exposure to traumatic uh, experiences in the line of uh, duty, which uh, many people in the emergency services will experience at some point in their careers. It's also the way that uh, individuals and organizations respond to those events. So uh, James told uh, in his story about uh, how uh, over a a period of time He had uh, developing symptoms of PTSD and didn't immediately recognise those symptoms. His colleagues didn't immediately recognise those symptoms. He spent, uh, he said, uh, first uh, using alcohol as a coping mechanism. Things like this are actually quite uh, common in the sector, resulting in people not necessarily seeking help or obtaining appropriate help in a timely way, which can result in uh, problems becoming more significant. So the typical course of... uh, of uh, mental health uh, issues for uh, many people in the the service is a gradual onset and uh, development of intensity of symptoms over a period of months or often years. And uh, we know that outcomes are much better if uh, people uh, seek help uh, early when problems start to arise.
1: And uh, one of the major issues that James spoke about was facing stigma so what did your research reveal about the prevalence of stigma amongst police and emergency services?
2: We had a lot of people in the services uh, in the survey tell us that uh, they were concerned about uh, raising issues around their mental health and well-being or even asking for help or support within their agencies because they were concerned that if they did so it would have a negative impact on their careers. And we actually had uh, quite a few people tell us about uh, negative uh, impacts that they had on their own careers or that uh, they had seen in, in colleagues that indicated that it's not just a perceived stigma, it's actual uh, <coughs> cultural issues and uh, practices within organisations that impact that. So we think that uh, one important step that we need to see to uh, move uh, forward in the emergency services is there needs to be a commitment within agencies to accept that mental health like uh, physical health issues are things that you can recover from it's not a lifelong sentence if you develop uh, anxiety depression ptsd we can recover from these conditions and you can uh, return to a, a full and productive life and i think people need to see examples within organizations where people experience mental health issues recover from those issues return to a full and productive career so that uh, people can build up confidence that uh, when organisations develop mental health uh, policies and programmes, that it's not just a policy on paper, that the organisation is committed to it, that people can uh, safely uh, discuss uh, the issues that uh, might arise uh, because of the nature of the work that they do.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you. Dr David Lawrence from the Graduate School of Education at the University of Western Australia. James decided to take his incredibly challenging experience of trauma at work and use it to help others. As National Engagement Manager of the Beyond Blue Police and Emergency Service Program, James shares his personal experience and stories with current and former emergency services workers.
0: I start by being very public and vulnerable with my own story. I think there is great power in sharing stories to break down the stigma that exists in this sector and the stigma that exists around mental health conditions and to inspire people to share their own story. And I think a really big part of the change that I want to see is I'm inspired to help address the the stigma that exists in this sector because... Uh, from what I've seen in my personal life and my working career, is that stigma is a major barrier to accessing and seeking support. That stigma that we hold about ourselves being broken, or being a burden on others and on the team, that is a major barrier to seeking that support that we so desperately need to improve our mental health and well-being. And that's the work that I'm inspired to to do, and the work that I'll be inspired to perform for the rest of my working life.
1: How do change that because it's quite systemic isn't it something like stigma
0: it is incredibly systemic and it is a systems level change that we need to see so if we look at the emergency services sector for example it is a great cultural and cognitive and policy change that needs to occur so it's multifaceted but I think it it actually starts with um, leaders walking the talk It starts with leaders being very open and vulnerable about their own mental health journeys. And I'm talking about the executives in the emergency services sector, sharing their stories, sharing their difficulties with mental health over the years and empowering the staff who report into them to also be vulnerable and share stories. And I think that story-sharing piece is critical to addressing stigma.
1: Is that happening?
0: It is and it isn't. I wish there was a standardised approach to this, What I've seen in in my personal life is that there are some executive leaders in the emergency service sector who are really doing this incredibly well, who are just open and vulnerable with their own experiences. And unfortunately others who came up through the ranks in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s where being vulnerable was seen as a sign of weakness. But I am seeing a cultural change across the emergency services sector. Another part of addressing the stigma that exists in this sector is also I think frontline managers play a critical part. And I think there's a real opportunity to help bolster the capability of frontline workers who are often the, the first port of call for people like me, you know, the constables, the senior constables, the, the people with five to 10 years service. Those frontline leaders are the people that we will go out and actively seek support from. And when we do, we want to know that there is a safety net of people who are trained and supportive to help us navigate and improve our mental health and well-being outcomes.
1: James Maskey. And if that discussion raised any issues for you, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. Thanks for tuning in today. And if you enjoy the show, please do us a massive favour and leave us some feedback if your app allows it. We love to read what you think, and it really does shape the show we make. Join me again next week as I delve into power in the workplace with psychologist Daka Keltner. I learnt so much from this conversation, including why power is so addictive and that powerful people are more prolific swearers at work. Bloody Nora! This Working Life is produced by Maria Tickle, whose New Year's resolution is not to swear at work. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, keep working.